All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers, uh, working with the Faith Unaltered podcast for a, a special episode today. I'm Dale, the Real Seeker, and uh, I'm joined by my two co-hosts. Uh, we have Tyler on the on the left. How's it going? What's up, Dale? Thank you for having me. This is going to be a fun episode. Awesome. And we also got David Russell on the bottom right there. So how's it going there, David? Good, buddy. Thanks for having us on. No problem, no problem. And of course, uh, the man of the hour, we have our special guest, Dr. Craig Blomberg on the show. Hi, Craig, how are you? Hi, good to be with you. Awesome. Th yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, believe it or not, um, Craig is a friend of Phil Bear, who's a mutual friend of ours. He's been on multiple shows, uh, doing you know discussing various topics and stuff. So yeah, I was really glad to uh, that he, you know, reached out to you and got you to agree to come on to talk about the Gospels. It's a great way to find out about you. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. So, so yeah, obviously the, the audience, they know enough about me. They don't want to hear about me. But uh, just in terms of yourself, this is your first time uh, doing your show with us. So I just want to give you kind of uh, a chance to introduce yourself to the audience who maybe they don't know you, a, a little bit about your background. And if you're willing, share a little bit about your faith journey as well. Sure. Um, well, in that order, um, I am uh, semi-retired, which gives me the title of uh, Professor Emeritus of uh, New Testament Studies at Denver Seminary. I still teach one course a semester and do a lot of other speaking and writing. Um, taught there for uh, 38 years, 35 full-time, and going on my third year part-time now. Um, prior to that, I was three years at Palm Beach Atlantic College in the mid 80s. Uh, now it's a university. Um, before that, uh, getting a doctorate in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, seminary from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, undergrad from Augustana College, uh, Lutheran College in Rock Island, Illinois. And that is the tradition I was raised in, but I really date my coming to faith uh, to a Campus Life Youth for Christ Club in my high school, and uh, then uh, was nurtured in the parachurch world, uh, both through Campus Life and then Campus Crusade for Christ, back when it had three words in its title. Um, when I was in college, now it's just crew. Um, and um, along the way, uh, went to seminary, uh, found a wife, uh, which uh, the odds weren't good in those days because I think uh, Trinity had 13% women and 87% men. But uh, wow, one pick. She, uh, <laughs> she eventually pursued me uh, faster than I pursued her, but it all worked out well. And um, we now have uh, two grown daughters, um, one of them married. She went to college in London, met and married a British man, raising our three grandchildren in the south of England, um, which is good for just about everything except getting to see them in the flesh very often. And our other daughter is uh, here locally and uh, is a scientist, uh, manages a lab at uh, uh, CU Denver Anschutz Center. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, like I said, it's great to, to have you on board and that sort of thing. So yeah, with that said, um, I do want to get straight into today's topics. We're talking about 
the reliability of the Gospels. This is a, a key topic. Obviously, we have skeptics like Bart Ehrman who were influential in attacking that sort of thing. So, yeah, D David, uh, David, I want to turn it to you because I know that you have a question, a couple of questions for Craig based on number two and three there. So over to you and unmute yourself. That'll help. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Neil. He's not a mind reader. Come on, dude. I just, you know, I want to know a little bit about, uh, and, you know, as apologists, we, we kind of, we get into this a lot. And we hear a lot about people saying what genre uh, um, acts and, and the gospels are. And when do the writings date from? We get some people that say they're early, some people that say they're late and stuff like that. So I was, that was just my first question there. You want a genre and you want some dates. Yes. It is certainly possible to uh, suggest very precise uh, terms that maybe uh, never quite fit. So I like to simply say that uh, the Gospels are theological biographies and that Acts is a theological history. It's a way of saying that... Um, they fit into that category of ancient Jewish, Greek, and Roman literature that um, sought to recount uh, key events, uh, actions, sayings of uh, famous uh, philosophers or religious leaders or rulers or military generals. Um, but Every work that we've ever discovered in the ancient world had uh, an ideological purpose. Um, I don't think the ancients would have made any sense of the notion of a congressional record that simply recorded everything that everybody said without comment. Um, and so that's why I say theological history or theological biography. Um, the dates, I tend to go for earlier dates. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, in the 60s, uh, Acts then as well. Uh, but I do date John most likely into the uh, late 80s or early 90s. I don't put as much stock in having to be right on the dates. Um, I think there are plenty of good reasons for... Uh, uh, trusting the general reliability of those works, uh, whether you have a so-called early date or a later one. All right. Yeah. I was also going to ask uh, to follow that up, but can we trust the traditional authorship? And uh, that's, I'll start with that first. I think so. But again, I think that's, that's one of those uh, debates that's, it's interesting. It's significant. Um, it may not be as crucial as some people suggest uh, because um, the alternative to the people whose names were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is um, some anonymous Christian uh, of perhaps one generation removed from those individuals, uh, but who um, drew their information to a large degree or inspiration uh, from the apostolic stream of Christianity. Uh, and so, um, again, like date, 
um, I happen to think a good case can be made for those four men, but I don't find it as crucial as some other topics uh, when we're talking about uh, historical trustworthiness. Yeah, I was going to ask on that, like, how sure can we be that the Gospels and Acts are actually written by eyewitnesses? Or people yeah, that knew the I eyewitnesses? mean, we're not, because uh, even if you take the uh, uh, tradition of the church, Luke wasn't around, um, and Mark might have been around for a little bit that happened near the end of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, because according to the book of Acts, uh, his mother had a home. Uh, there that uh, Christians met in uh, uh, 15 years or so later. Uh, but already, even if you if you follow the uh, oldest and, and unanimous traditions of the early church, uh, two of the four um, gospel writers uh, were not eyewitnesses uh, of most, uh, maybe any, of Jesus' ministry. So the question really is, could they have interviewed eyewitnesses? Could they have heard and talked to people uh, who did walk and talk with Jesus? And of course, there the answer is clearly yes, because uh, um, the Christian world was very small and uh, all of them had occasion to be in Israel, where all the first Christians came from. And um, Many of those individuals lived uh, uh, for decades after Jesus. Right on, right on. And I, one more, one more question as part of this last question is: uh, What authority was placed on the writings in the earliest period that we know of? Well, the the, the the if you're talking just about the Gospels and Acts, yeah. uh, the earliest uh, that we know of. Um, is uh, second century testimony from uh, various writers who have come to be known as, as uh, church fathers. They all happen to be men. And um, you begin to see quotations. You begin to see uh, allusions close enough to the wording um, in those writings, and they begin to be used authoritatively and then eventually people start calling them scripture and then by at least the middle of the uh, second century and beyond uh, people start to talk about a new testament uh, a written version of uh, the new covenant that christians believed god made through jesus with his people and just as uh, a written record had been created uh, of the Mosaic Covenant from Sinai, uh, it was Tertullian who uh, made the suggestion uh, that it was perfectly natural that God should do that again with the coming of the new covenant. Um, so from the mid-second century on, then you begin to have people discussing, well, what books should be in this new covenant or new testament? And um, the debates are all about uh, various smaller letters later on and uh, the weird and wonderful book of Revelation. But uh, there's virtually no debate uh, about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I have a follow-up uh, just real quick. Whenever you say that the Gospels were being used authoritatively, do you mean liturgically or is there another way in which they were being used as well? Yeah, it, just as uh, you, you find... Uh, um, 
some of the writers uh, are recounting uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp, uh, the uh, letter of Clement to the church in Rome, uh, a collection of visions that were given to somebody uh, by the name of Hermas, and he becomes known as the Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah. All different genres of literature in the second century, but uh, as they speak, uh, as they narrate whatever they're talking about, all of a sudden the writer will lapse into, as so-and-so said, or as scripture has said, or simply uh, recording something that Jesus did and said because he was an authority, but uh, in language that makes us pretty confident that this is a, an actual reference to something written down in the Gospels or in the Book of Acts. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Right on. Well, Tyler, it's your turn anyway, buddy. I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bloomberg. It's uh, not my turn. Answers. It's Dell's no, turn. Not. Is it? Uh, no, Tyler, no, you can, you can you. go with question number four, buddy. Sure. You want me to go to number four? four. Okay. Yeah. All righty. So our, my question is, are the written gospels and acts reliable in your view? Part one. And then what about all the alleged differences, contradictions, and supposed errors? Should these make us doubt the real, the reliability? Um, first answer is yes. Second answer is no. Um, <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> I like it. <laughs> the um, big question uh, that that people have to get uh, a handle on mm -hmm. really is what was expected in the ancient Mediterranean world uh, when someone penned uh, a historical or biographical account. Mm -hmm. uh, today, we look for uh, a certain comprehensive nature to coverage of somebody's life or period of time. We look for um, exact quotations when we say that we're reporting someone's words. Uh, we have uh, symbols, we call them quotation marks, to indicate when that's happening. Um, we have levels of precision that um, maybe vary from one reader to another or one subculture to another. Mm -hmm. um, just think about uh, the different subcultures in the Western world and what makes a person late for something. There's a huge variety there. Sure. Um, but uh, in a world without uh, timekeeping devices, except for a, a sundial, and you didn't wear one on your wrist, um, to talk about a general time of the day, to make references uh, to uh, the time in someone's life with language like in those days, um, to organize material topically rather than chronologically and to realize that words like now and then, even as they do in English, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes do not uh, denote uh, chronology. Put all of those uh, cultural features together and you probably have accounted for 90 plus percent of the 
little differences that you find among gospel parallels where two or more writers are talking about the same events or the same teachings of Jesus. Sure. Now, there are uh, a much smaller percentage that can't be explained that way, that you have to ask uh, specific questions about, and, and it's hard to generalize there other than, than talk about certain uh, examples. But the idea that different writers select different portions of events or different portions of someone's speech uh, certainly accounts for a fair number. Um, the possibility that um, their ideological or theological purposes would make them put what at first glance seems to be a quite different slant on an issue. Mm. Um, an example I love to use with, with classes is what happened when the wind and the waves died down and Jesus was walking on the water and got to the boat where the disciples were. Mark says that when Jesus got in the boat, the disciples did not understand because their hearts were hardened. Mm -hmm. Matthew says they worshiped him and called him the son of God. Mm. Well, if I am not thinking in historical cultural context, if uh, I'm an engineer or a mathematician rather than uh, somebody who spends their life reading literature, mm -hmm. um, that just sounds like a flat out contradiction. Right. But how are you going to make your YouTube video of this? How are you going to do a scene for the chosen of this? Um, if there really was the appearance of Jesus, and as far as anybody could tell, he was walking on top of the water and not sinking, and he gets to the boat and the storm miraculously stills, I think worship would be a very natural reaction and son of God does not yet at this time mean the uh, second person of the Trinity co-equal with father and the spirit and all of the many uh, predicates of the Nicene Creed that would come out of Jesus life and be developed later. Right. Son of God is what the, the Roman commander watching Jesus die called him because he was somebody pretty special. Mm -hmm. um, now, having said that, do I have the least clue as to what just happened and what I saw? I wouldn't have. Are, is my heart hardened? Mm -hmm. Well, not in the sense I'm actively rebelling against God, but it it just hasn't been softened enough for me to make sense of spectacular phenomena. Right. Add on top of that, that those aren't random changes. Mark is the gospel that consistently highlights the fear and failure of the disciples as a kind of backhanded way to encourage folks that they eventually came around and God did great things through them. That can be your end too, even if you're feeling this way. Matthew has more references to worship and more references to son of God. So these aren't 
random differences, they fit in patterns that the gospel writers are trying to highlight. I feel like I've talked for a long time, but uh, you asked me an enormous question and that just scratches the surface. No, you're fine. And I appreciate the detail. And, you know, to go back a little bit to what you said, it would it seems like we're as Bible believers are in a lose lose situation whenever it comes to opponents of the Bible and its historicity and reliability, because because of the differences, some will say that it's not reliable. But then again, if everything was to add up perfectly and they wrote the exact same thing, I feel like people forget it would still be unreliable, right? Because, well, they got together and this just proves that they copied off of each other and they and they wrote a story that sounded good. And so I find, you know, just personally, the little differences that you're talking about really brings the reliability, in my mind anyway, to be more reliable than if it was to I mean, you just think of a court scenario where two people are given testimony or three and they give the exact same story with no differential in detail. Somebody's going to look at them kind of suspect and say, I think you guys collaborated your story before you got up on the stand. And so that's just my thoughts uh, on the entire thing. Uh, but I'll turn it over to David or Dell if you guys got any follow up. Well, I thought that was really good. Let me good. just say I agree 100%. And, and yeah. if you are looking for flat-out contradictions where historians have to choose one account or another or neither, mm -hmm. you can find them in other sure. ancient historians. Uh, it's not that we are molding all the evidence to to be a win-win situation for us, sure. um, but it does hit that sweet spot uh, between lack of collusion, except for the places where one gospel is obviously simply copying from another. Right. Um, and the real kind of dramatic differences uh, that would turn Jesus into a, a very different kind of person. And that's not what we find. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I just have a couple, a couple of follow-ups on this on my end. So uh, one thing I just wanted to ask you uh, regarding the, the differences in that. So, um, we've had uh, Mike Lacona on the show before, and he he goes, you know, he's done excellent work on the Gospels, and he argues for the use of ancient literary devices to explain away a, a lot of these seemingly contradictions and stuff. We've also had Lydia McGrew on the other mm -hmm. side, and she totally disagrees. She has her own view where she doesn't think this is a useful device. So I'm just kind of curious, like, where do you fall on this? Do you think that there's merit to the ancient literary devices? And if so, does that create a problem for modern people interpreting the Bible or I've, I've always been a mediator whenever possible. Um, and that's not the reason for my answer, but yes, I fall somewhere between Lydia and Mike. Um, I've endorsed both of their works. Uh, I think they, they both have good things to say. Um, if you study, uh, Michael Kona's work on the gospels, I think uh, a sizable number of the uh, things that he points out are akin to what I was just pointing out. One of the most helpful things he does is to uh, point to examples in other literature where I think he uses the term spotlighting. Mm -hmm. um, if there are a group of people, if there is a pair of individuals but only one plays a significant role, or maybe only one is a speaker, it's very common for 
two different accounts to refer in one case to a group of people and in another case to just a, a single spokesman. And that's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction in 21st century uh, scholarship either, unless you say only one person is present. So I think Lacone is very helpful there. And I doubt Lydia would disagree with that because uh, she said some stuff uh, similar to that in some of her works. Take something like um, Mark and John, when Jesus sets out on the sea in the storm after feeding the 5,000. And the one author says he's heading for Bethsaida. And the other says he's heading for Capernaum. And he actually winds up south of both of those, Gennesaret. Well, yeah, if you've got a boats with oars, you don't always get exactly where you want to go in a storm. Um, Mike and I have had this conversation. He thinks it's it's just one of those uh, things that ancient writers do that maybe uh, a place name gets uh, transferred uh, from what it was to a different place, but it doesn't affect what actually happens in the account. Um, here's where I would side with Lydia, and I would say no. Um, if we're going to have any credibility um, with those who say, well, you could have a contradiction hit you on the head and knock you on, on the ground and you wouldn't acknowledge it. Um, I would have to say, yeah, it it's, doesn't make sense unless wherever Jesus and the 12 were, hmm, out in Gentile wilderness, sounds to me like sort of east of the Sea of Galilee, well, if I chart Bethsaida on a map, I'm heading east-northeast. And Capernaum, I could avoid Bethsaida by going straight over open water, which no boater in the ancient world in his right mind did in a storm. Hmm. I'm going to hug the coast. Maybe he was planning to stop off at Bethsaida for supplies. Who knows? But it's not as if uh, the two Gospels said, um, well, somebody was going to Spain and the other was going to China. You can't do those at the same time, not until you discover the world's round. Um, <laughs> they're diametrically opposite directions. It's, it's, it fits hand in glove the historical context that if you're heading for one, you'd be heading for the other en route. And if you got blown off uh, course, uh, where they ended up is exactly where you'd expect somebody blown off course to end up. So I don't have to, in my mind, say that one writer substituted Capernaum for Bethsaida or the other way around just gratuitously. Mike doesn't do a lot of that. He does sometimes. And that's where I would disagree with him. Uh, Lydia just calls something a literary device. She's become more nuanced in more recent writing, but early on she would just call something a literary device and write it off. Well, a metaphor is a literary device. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed is a literary device. Um, she didn't really mean 
to tarnish all literary devices. So it's sort of unfortunate that she used that language. Gotcha. There's my mediating. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I am thrilled that I asked that follow-up. Yeah, because it, it's good to yeah. get, look, there are positions in between. I, I respect and consider, I'm friends with both Lydia and Mike, and I think they've done great work and, and stuff, but I, I kind of fall in the middle. I, I agree on certain things with Mike, and there are other times where I'm kind of like, I, I don't think um, you're right in, on this specific example or something. So Stay yeah. the course, man. Stay the course. There you go. <laughs> Balance <laughs> is key. <laughs> All right. Uh, my my uh, second follow up on this question. Um, so it's on the okay. So you've told us about the historical reliability of the Gospels, despite and Acts, and that despite differences and that sort of thing. But what about this problematic area, especially if you're talking to atheists and stuff about the historicity of miracles? Like, uh, what can we say about the historicity of the miracle accounts in the Gospels? Uh, yeah, I think. Before I even started down that track in an actual conversation, I would want to know what the biggest stumbling block was because there are so many different potential answers. Am I talking to someone who, through whatever scientific training uh, they may have had, um, simply says, well, we know science has demonstrated this is simply impossible, then I would want to have a conversation to suggest that no, um, what Christians and various other religious people typically define as a miracle is something that is not a transgression of, but simply outside of the realm of science to investigate because the ideal scientific investigation is something that can be recreated under laboratory conditions. Um, but another person is gonna say, no, um, I just think uh, there are too many parallels in Greco-Roman mythology. And so then the conversation would be, well, which ones strike you as, as the most problematic? And let's see actually how close they are. Let's see what time they come from. Uh, the ones that, in my opinion, are pretty close parallels are without a single exception, all post-Christian. So if anybody was influencing anybody, it had to have been the gospels influencing the later myths. Um, but there are, a handful that are pre-Christian that have some interesting similarities. Okay, let's talk about that. Um, for a third person, uh, it might just be, well, this all seems so self-serving. <laughs> Run out of wine. Okay, I was planning on spending a week being drunk. Let's, uh, let's create enough to keep on partying. And well, let's talk about the actual purpose of the miracles. Um, and if that seems far-fetched, let's look to the church. And why did Jesus still the storm? And I've lost count of the number of times the preacher has said, and God will still the storms of your life as well. Except he doesn't always. That's just false. And it's not where the story ends. 
every one of the three accounts. No contradiction here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all end by saying, disciples marveled and said, who is this that wind and waves obey him? Hmm. The miracles in the gospels are very consistently um, pointers to the arrival of the kingdom of God, which means that a king must have come. Or another way of putting it is they match Old Testament prophecies about a coming messianic era, which means the Messiah must have come. So they drive us to raise the question of Christ's identity. When you recognize that, uh, they're not gratuitous. They're not random at all. Gotcha. Um, I I know I said that was my last follow-up, but just very quickly, if you don't mind, um, uh, on the miracles, I, I've tried to bring on uh, Graham Twelftree on the show. Uh, I haven't done it yet, but for example, he he actually thinks there's historical evidence to say I think about 22 to 24 of the miracle accounts. We can make an argument that they probably happened. Um, do you think that there's good evidence for specific miracle miracle accounts? And you know, what are some of those ones that you think, you know, beyond just the resurrection? Yeah, I, I mean. Um... I've never counted up uh, as Graham has. He he is probably the um, certainly outside of the United States, although he spent much of his career at Regent University in Virginia. He's a native Australian. Now he's the dean of London School of Theology. Um, but in the, the world of the British uh, former empire, now Commonwealth, uh, he probably is the leading scholar uh, on miracles and one who has done more than even the big name Americans um, in terms of going passage by passage and saying, let's look at the details uh, using the various standards. Some people call them the criteria of authenticity. Um, How do these texts measure up? And um, it may be something as tiny and easily overlooked as um, how a funeral procession uh, was arranged so that in Galilee, um, the bier or the coffin tended to be at the front of the procession with the mourners following behind. And in Judea and in Jerusalem, it was reversed. Is that something that anybody that wasn't very familiar with uh, Israel uh, and historical tradition would have known? So that when I read about the uh, resurrection of the son of the widow Nain in Galilee and how Jesus comes and touches the front of the coffin well that would be natural because that was at the front of the parade it would have been a lot harder for him to get in between everybody uh to do that in the south he would have come from behind it's not probative but it's just a fascinating coincidence that works out and you start seeing little things like this repeatedly Why in John 2 do 
do we find out in a story in the account of turning water into wine that is uh, barely 12 verses long? Why do we find out that the water was kept in six stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification? One of the things that archaeologists have been discovering by the boatload, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, yep. in recent decades are stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification because they were uh, they didn't leak as much as other things uh, that you could store water in, and they didn't become ritually impure as easily. Um, all of this comes right out of uh, what you would expect uh, if this was a, a wealthy family um, able to uh, cater to a, a wedding that the tiny small village came out for in its entirety. Um, they probably would have had their own mikvah, their own ritual immersion pool and they would have needed a good supply of, of fresh uh, living water uh, to keep it purified. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, the actual miracle. <laughs> That's all about the wine, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it fits uh, what we're learning more and more about the history and the culture. Go to uh, some of the miracles that happen in uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and you just don't find stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. All right, awesome. So uh, I'm going to switch switch gears here. Oh, Tyler, did you have something to say? Or nope? Okay. No, no go ahead. Uh, so, so I'm going to switch gears here. So this is something that's actually been interesting for between me and Tyler because Tyler's a member of the Eastern Orthodox, um, yeah. and I'm. Uh, evangelical Protestant and that sort of thing. So we've been kind of discussing how the oral tradition worked pre the writing down of the Gospels in that earliest period. And, um, you know, I, I've appealed to Kenneth Bailey, who, who's yeah. said there are three models, right? There's the Boltman model, um, which is kind of like the form critics where they just say, oh, it's like a game of telephone, they make up whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't think any of us believe that. But there's also this distinction between form, formal controlled tradition and informal controlled tradition. Did, did you just want to kind of want to speak as to what these different models are and which one do you think best applies? Uh, to these um, you've got to have them both. Uh, the first one is basically a synonym for memorization. And uh, there is unquestioning uh, large amounts of evidence to show that Jewish, Greek, and Roman children alike in what were called oral, what we call oral cultures, learned huge amounts of information simply by rote memorization. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, to go back to an earlier topic, there are enough differences among parallel accounts of the Gospels that obviously more than just a memorized version of something that everybody would pass on identically is going on. And um, people uh, going well beyond and before Kenneth Bailey, the 
The key researcher in this area was a man by name of Albert Lord, who taught at Harvard in the 50s and 60s. Um, he wrote a classic book called The Singer of Tales, uh, studied all around Eastern Europe, North Africa, Middle East, um, and then others after him that when a small uh, clan or tribe or kinship group or village uh, town hall gathering uh, recited the epic stories of their communities that had not been put in writing, that had not been put in a fixed written form. Mm -hmm. um, there was remarkable continuity uh, among those who were authorized to tell the story and specific people uh, gained that uh, honor. It wasn't just something anybody could do but that from one context to the next, depending on the length of time, the purposes, uh, the occasion, uh, certain events were included and others might be left out. You were free to paraphrase. You were free to explain along the way about something you're telling. You were free to abbreviate. But there were also fixed points that were crucial to the particular epic that needed to be told in certain ways if you were going to tell them. And you didn't have that freedom. Uh, so uh, informal controlled tradition um, certainly explains well uh, a lot of what we have in the Gospels. And then there's uh, um, another approach that is, is even more recent than those that is uh, dominating some circles today, and that's what's called social memory. What happens when a group of people all have learned um, about and to tell uh, important parts of their own history and tend to do so publicly and at least in pairs, if not in small groups, um, the, the problem with the child's game of telephone is it envisions uh, somebody whispering a somewhat long and complex message to somebody else, usually a kid who's not very good at, at remembering stuff uh, because that's not the way we learn. Um, and every single detail of that model is the exact opposite of the way oral tradition functioned in the ancient world. <clears throat> you told it publicly. You told it with somebody present who could correct you if you goofed. Uh, if you messed up, not only could correct you, had the responsibility to correct you. Mm. Um, and uh, that that's another whole fascinating area that, that we need to be studying even more. It sounds like what you're just what you just described, uh, the social aspect, would go really hand in hand with the early church. Yes, is, is that okay? Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. Um, and and it goes hand in hand with what what so many people, I want to say forget, but but don't even think about, is how many times while Jesus was still alive. Did the disciples hear any given part of what we have recorded in the Sermon on the Mount? Mm. Well, we've got the Sermon on the Plain in Luke that has some parallels. 
-hmm. people debate if it's the same sermon or a different occasion. The Gospels say that Jesus went around all the villages of Galilee. If that's not a hyperbole, that's 200 villages, according to Josephus. Mm -hmm. That's that's doable in a three-year period of time. Um, you only have to go, what, three, seven, ten, one place every five days. <laughs> um, did he create a brand new sermon for every place he went? Nobody in the ancient world did that. No. Did he take some of the sayings in the Sermon on the Mount and reconfigure them and combine them and add stuff that we don't know about and add stuff that we have from other contexts and configure and, and tailor everything to a specific occasion? Probably. How many times did the disciples hear the Beatitudes, which is so core? How many times did they hear all of the teaching about uh, you can't serve both God and mammon and take no thought for tomorrow and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Mm -hmm. A couple hundred? Okay, let's be conservative. Maybe only a hundred. How could anybody memorize a sermon that long, the critics say, when you hear it just once and you don't take notes, A, they didn't hear it just once, and B, they were allowed to take notes. Mm -hmm. I suspect they didn't have to after hearing it that often. Mm -hmm. um, when I preach, by if I do three sermons on a Sunday morning at a large church, there is a lot of wording that is repeated from the second to the third service, and I don't memorize my sermons. If I had to do that 50 times, I don't need notes. <laughs> You're good to go. Sermons are a lot longer than it takes to read out loud the Sermon on the Mount. Sure. Absolutely. People just are not thinking historically accurately. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Uh, David, do, do you have any follow-ups? You you've been sitting there for a while, so no, no, I'm enjoying the talk, man. It's really good. It's he's answered a lot of questions, even give me some new things to think about. So I'm really appreciative so far. I'm still trying to figure out what's behind you. I I can recognize the episode. <laughs> I don't know what's behind you. It looks like it's a bookshelf or something. That, well, it is with some of my college oh, books. Oh, it's just a bookshelf. Okay. Yeah, it's a bunch of books. I've got the Three Kings on one side and a mosaic that my mom made for me. And cool. my uh, Christian stone, um, you know, the fish carved in the rock. And then my uh, degrees are behind me. So. <laughs> and then I look at Tyler and I realize what a poor disciple I am because – <laughs> love, love your enemy is the single hardest thing Jesus ever said. Yep. And Samuel Sandmel in the 1960s, a Jewish New Testament scholar said, it's the most original thing and there's nothing like it in Judaism. Amen. Absolutely. That's All why right. I keep it there to remind me while That's I'm good. on here. Love my enemies. <laughs> <laughs> we do deal with enemies on this show sometimes. <laughs> All right, cool. So, uh, the last question, on, uh, official question on the list, and then I'll I'll go to my two co-hosts if they have follow-ups. But uh, you've kind of specialized in interpreting the parables specifically, uh, the parables That's of true. Jesus. 
uh, yeah, you, you got your book, Interpreting the Parables and that sort of thing. So I, I wanted you to kind of outline what, what are some of the various contemporary, you know, scholarly or critical approaches to these parables? And, you know, what's your own distinctive approach on that front? My goodness, boil that down to 90 seconds. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> I'll give you 90 seconds. <laughs> yeah. One huge item is the question of how many of the details in a parable are significant and in what ways are they significant throughout much of the history of the church there was rampant allegorizing where every detail had to be there for a reason it had to stand for something i think people today recognize that every detail was probably there for a reason, but those reasons tended to be, in the most part, because they made the story seem very realistic and true to life in that culture, with the occasional exception of something that proved to be quite a surprise that was a key to understanding what Jesus himself uniquely was trying to communicate. But tied in with that is the question of, do we talk about a parable making a point or deriving lessons or principles from parables? There are some at one extreme end of postmodernism who say no. Um, the question, what do parables mean, is a wrong-headed one. The right question is, how do they mean? How do they make meaning? And the best thing you can do with the parable is to simply retell it, maybe change some details to their modern-day equivalents so that the story can have the same kind of impact on a modern audience that Jesus's did. And I'm all for that kind of contemporization, but I would deny that that means uh, we can't sum up the message of a parable. Well, then, do we follow what, for most of the 20th century, was the dominant approach to interpretation? And that is to say, everything had to cluster in, focus in on, zoom toward a single main point. Take uh, maybe the most famous story of all, the parable of the prodigal son. I like to ask audiences when I'm asked to talk on parables. Let's reread that story. What do you think Jesus is trying to teach? And somebody pretty quickly will usually say, well, the the prodigal was so far gone. I mean, surely the point is it doesn't matter how far from God you have been. As long as the breath of life is in you, you can turn back to him. And I go, yes, absolutely. And then somebody else will say, yeah, but you didn't need an older brother in the story to make that point. There's something here about not begrudging God's lavish forgiveness for sinners. And I go, you're right. 
And then a third person will say, I think we need to look at the father. I think uh, this should have been called the parable of the two sons or the father and his two sons. And he shows remarkable mercy and compassion and tenderness for both sons. And I say, you're right. And if you can find a way to combine all of those statements into one single proposition, you are more clever than anything I've come up with in the last 40 plus years. Tell me what you come up with. Maybe the balance between rampant allegorization and just focusing on one point is to find who the main characters, not subordinate trivial ones, but who the, the main players in the stories of Jesus are. And in about two thirds of the instances, there are three of them. There's a master figure and there are contrasting subordinates. And read the parables through the eyes of those characters and ask, what are we to learn if we focus on each character in turn? Awesome. And then I teach a whole course on it, but I'll stop. <laughs> I, you know, no, I think it's, you know, I've all, often taught my like uh, youth, you know, the youth, I used to teach youth um, um, a little while back. And I would always tell my students that when we go over the prodigal son, um, you know, it should be the tale of the two sons because, it, you know, there's a very scary part in that. And that is the uh, the fact that the parables left open. We never get we yes. never know if the, 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 the other son goes back in, that's you know, right. and that and to me, that's that says something. And that's very deep. And, you know, you just you, you got to take that into consideration when you when you. Look and of course, that. the older son's a fictitious character, so. Jesus can end the story any place he wants. Um, the question is, what will we as listeners do if we're like the older brother? Will we go back in or not? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So, Tyler, um, yeah, I want to turn it over to you if you have any follow-up questions. So we, Dale, I could go on all day <laughs> long, brother. <laughs> but I do want to respect Dr. Blomberg's time. Uh, we've got about four minutes left, and so I think I'll save that. Uh, if you would love to, or if you'd like to come back on with us to do a part two, Doctor Blomberg, I'd love to pick your brain some more, sure. especially yeah, on tradition too. and oral tradition. So, um, but yeah, Dale, I'll leave it there and turn it over to you. And thank you, Doctor Blomberg. This has been very eye-opening for me, welcome. and I really appreciate you coming yep. on. It's, it's an honor. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Cool. Well, uh, we've we've got only two comments um, in the audience. So I'll just so one very quickly is it's not really a question for you, but it's it's just saying they they Silver Pie personally enjoyed your chapter in Lee Strobel's book. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have like a quick little thing to say about um, that chapter that might be relevant. Just to say that autocorrect's done it again. If you type my name <laughs> ah. correctly, it always gets changed to Bloomberg because. Uh, Bloomberg's not in words dictionary and Bloomberg is. Um, yeah, uh, it was uh, quite a surprise and an honor. Uh, one day way back in, uh, I think it was 1996, when uh, I got a phone call back in the days of uh, landlines and uh, Lee Strobel wanted to fly out from Chicago on a Friday and interview me for two hours and then fly home again. And that's what he did. 
<laughs> and then he sent me a, a transcript of the tape recording that was done on a little miniature cassette tape player. Um, and uh, uh, then we, uh, he said, now, I am, I am not going to uh, write this up as a, a, a verbatim, as what just counselors would say, you know, exactly what did you say, exactly what did he say. He wanted to make it more interesting than that. <laughs> and uh, he said, but if I if I don't think I've been fair to your words at any point, I want you to tell me that, which I appreciated. And there were places where he wasn't, and I did, and he changed it. Um, and I appreciated that as well. And um, the only stuff that I just found really hokey was the introduction where he talked about I found Craig sitting at a high back chair, stroking his beard and sipping a cup of coffee. <laughs> and on his wall were two paintings that looked like they had been painted by children. And I found out they were right. They had been done by his two daughters. I thought, Come on, get on to the topic. But um, it was a stroke of brilliance because... Uh, one day we had two prospective students. I had left my office. I'd left the door open like I typically did. I came back. I saw one of our admissions officers with two people peering in the door of my office. And I said, can I help you? And I'm Craig Blomberg. And they said, no, no, we don't have any questions. We just wanted to see where those two paintings were that Lee Storm <laughs> So, I mean... It had an amazing effect. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. This one comes from a more skeptical listener. It's, it's kind of related to our discussion about miracles. Uh, I guess they're saying like, well, look, Jesus said it's a wicked generation who asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. Um, so I guess if I'm interpreting their question here, it'd be, well, why are you, why are we even asking about the other miracles? We're only going to get the sign of Jonah. So there, there shouldn't be evidence for miracles other, elsewhere. Oh, you think that's what it means? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, what, what was the sign of Jonah um, is itself somewhat debated, but I take it to be as, as Matthew spells out in more detail than Luke that um, him being in the belly of the great fish um, for three days and three nights was an analogy, was a uh, foreshadowing of uh, Jesus' experience with his death and resurrection. Um, it's not that Jesus never gives signs because in the gospel of John, he gives seven of them and John never uses the Greek words for miracles or wonders that the synoptics do. John uses the word sign, the Greek semeon. Um, signs are very much given to either believers or those who are open to becoming believers. But it's when, if you check the context of this, one place you can find it is Matthew 16, um, the wicked generation who asks for a sign. Um, it's from those who are simply baiting him. 
This comes after he has fed both the 5,000 and the 4,000. Those are not adequate signs. What, what more could the Pharisees and scribes be looking for? It, it's clear that they're not genuine seekers. They just want to mock the whole concept. And uh, what, what could possibly convince them beyond any reasonable doubt? Probably nothing. And so it's to people like that. It's to those in the populace that form what Jesus calls here a wicked generation. Um, yeah, Jesus is going to give them a sign, the resurrection. Um, but what did he say in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Even if someone should come to them from the dead, they will not believe. Um, there has to be at least a, an openness uh, to the possibility that this is true um, for anything to function as a sign. Right. Awesome. All right. Good. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. You'll be happy to know. Uh, um, Silver Pie got back and said, uh, uh, "Have mercy on me." <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, autocorrect. <laughs> awesome. Silver Pie. I, I'm not yeah. sure I want to eat silver in my pie, but it kind of has a, a neat sound to it. Um, <laughs> I'd take it and sell it. Your health, but it's, it looks pretty, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It awesome. could be yeah. just one of those, uh, those, those yeah, types of yeah. icings <laughs> that you put on the cake. It's what you put in the window, but you never sell it to anybody. That works. Right. <laughs> Awesome. So, so yeah, we, we are at the one hour mark and I, I want to respect uh, Dr. Blomberg's time as well. But uh, yeah, just out of curiosity, just before we go, do you have a, a closing word? Do you want to make any plugs for websites or, or anything <laughs> that you want for the audience there? Um, no, I'm not going to plug websites or plug my books. That That's too self-serving, I think. Um, for those... Uh, whether Christian or not, who might be listening um, and still have very genuine, very sincere questions. Um, I'm actually grateful for that. I think there are too many people, uh, both today and in the history of Christianity, who, for whatever reason, um, have just accepted things on faith and never asked the hard questions. And unfortunately, some of those at some point in their life then are confronted with the hard questions, don't know what to do with them and, and give it all up. Um, so I commend everyone who's asking those questions, including our hosts here. Um, I just want to say that in an internet dominated world, where uh, fact-checking is far too rare, even though we do see it. Um, we really need to develop um, the practice of any time you think you know something, find someone who disagrees, and then compare and weigh the evidence. Uh, 
if you can't find the evidence, that in itself tells you something, but keep trying. Um, there is nothing in the Bible that people haven't known about for centuries. And there are no problems in the Bible that people haven't discussed for centuries. Uh, it always is remarkable to me that um, so many folks personally discover something that they've never noticed before, mm -hmm. perhaps because they read it from somebody else, and therefore think that this is some new discovery that threatens the faith. Um, people have had the Bible in its totality um, from the second century onward, and it's been canonized from the fourth century onward. And um, they've been talking about these questions this whole time. I'm not saying that every solution is equally convincing or that I think uh, you should accept the first solution you discover to a problem. There might be a better one. Mm -hmm. um, but to somehow think that because you haven't found it, there are no solutions that large numbers of smart people have not found thoroughly satisfying and adequate is pretty much the height of arrogance. <laughs> uh, it just means you haven't looked very far. And I want to apply that to myself. I want to, I want to the golden rule to be followed here. Uh, I have discovered stuff online um, that looks like it would wonderfully support the Christian faith. I have had people tell me, dare I even say it in formats like this, but not from you three. And it turns out to be completely made up. It'd be wonderful. It was true. It would support Christianity, but it's totally fake. Yeah. Um, if it's something new that you haven't seen before, don't automatically believe it's true and don't automatically believe it's false. Keep digging, keep asking, keep hunting until you find different perspectives and weigh the evidences. End of sermon. Amen. Amen. Yeah, very well said. And you're you're going to hate me. I just have one quick question. You can, <laughs> yes, you can give it a yes or no, but... I don't mind you asking more questions, but you're going to lose credibility every time you say, I just have one. Yeah. More. So, so just ask it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, the Shroud of Turin. Uh, do you think that's authentic? Yes or no? Because I'm a, I'm a known for doing Shroud shows. So. I don't think anybody can say yes or no confidently, um, given the state of the evidence, though I know people do. Um, I am not aware that any definitive explanation of how um, that uh, portrait that looks for all the world, like it could be a first century crucified Jew, I don't think anybody has conclusively determined 
how it got on the shroud. I know some suggestions that have been debunked. Um, I know the last time it was subject to independent laboratory examination on four different continents, they all came back with 11th century dating, but they also were all given just little bits of the margins of the shroud, uh, which could have been added on at a later time. Um, yeah, that'd be super cool if it turned out to be real. Uh, but uh, until we have more evidence that we have now, it's uh, risking climbing out on a branch. It's going to break and you fall to the ground off the tree limb. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. So, yep. At this point, I will fulfill my promise and uh, <laughs> we'll end the show. So, yeah, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. And I, you are very said, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Blomberg. Love it's been that. awesome. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, that. Thanks. Have a, have a great week, everybody. And I will click the big red button. Hold on.